It's fun for me to be here uh, and get to share the message. We're going through the same sermon series right now called Love Your Neighbor, uh, as, as you guys are here in Bethlehem. So Adam and I have been working together on this. And so we're, we're continuing the series today through Love Your Neighbor by talking about loving our neighbors by being people of justice, all right, by, by doing justice, by loving mercy, by being compassionate people who love justice. And um, it's, justice is one of those things that when you look in scriptures, it's actually like probably one of the most overlooked pieces of the artwork that is our God. And, and in scripture, it's all over the place, so often so that we probably miss it. We probably just blow right past it because we're like, oh, justice, righteousness, compassion, yeah, yeah. We, we see it so often, we probably blow past it. And when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of when I was younger, uh, when I was living in my parents' house, when I was really little, my dad and my grandfather redid our hallway upstairs. And we grew up in a, a house that was built in the 1850s, so that the walls were plaster and lath. And they, they took the plaster down and they put up new sheetrock. Redid that, redid the bathroom, and I went about my life as a kid. And, and when I was about 20, after I was, I got, when I get married, 20, 21, I don't know, uh, my wife came to the house, and she went upstairs to use the bathroom, and she came down and said, why is your hallway not painted? I was like, what do you mean it's not painted? She's like, it's just sheetrock. Why is it just sheetrock? I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I went upstairs and looked, and I was like, huh, the wall is just sheetrock. Like, it had been just sheetrock for 20 years, like, and I had no idea. I just walked past it every day and never even really noticed it. I just kept walking past it. And like, we, I had siblings and we would like run our hands down it. So it had been there long enough that it was like that dirt mark down the wall. Like never even noticed it. It took my wife to be like, hey, can we make sure in our marriage we're going to finish projects and not just leave things sheetrock? Anyway, uh, the point being, I had missed it. I just kept walking past it and not really noticing it or seeing it. And like I said, I think we do that with this concept of justice in scripture. And, and we just blow past it and we don't even really see it anymore because it's so prevalent in scripture. But our God desires justice. He desires righteousness, fairness, things to be put right. Going all the way back to the garden, to the fall of humanity, we see that, that humanity chooses to walk away from God and the shalom of God, the goodness of God is broken on the earth. And ever since then, God has worked through creation to redeem creation, to, to restore creation to its place of, of shalom, of goodness, to this being a place of justice where things are as they should be. And God started this project. You see him do it through, through Noah, but then we, mostly we see him go to Abraham and say, I'm going to make you a family. I'm going to make you a family of, of shalom who, who spreads this, the glory of God to the nations around, and you're going to do justice, and you're going to treat each other well, and the world is going to come to know me through you, through the way that you live just and fair and righteous lives. And then we see Abraham and his family become the family of Israel, and they become the nation of Israel. And God sets these parameters for the people of Israel, and he says, you're going to treat each other well. You're going to love God, and you're going to love neighbors. And here's how, what it's going to look like. And there's all these decrees and statutes about, here's what it looks like to do justice. Here's what it looks like to do justice. And I wanted to read some of these. But I had so many that I was like, I'm not even going to turn pages in Scripture. I'm just going to print some of these out. Um, in Deuteronomy, if you know Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you see these are the, kind of the Old Testament places where God said, here's how you're to behave. Here's how you're to act as a nation. Here's the commands that you're supposed to do and follow. Deuteronomy 10 says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Right? He loves the poor and the rich the same. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow 
and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, near the end of Deuteronomy, there's these blessings and curses. If you follow the commands of the law, these are the blessings you're going to get. If you don't follow them, you're going to be cursed in this way. Well, listen to this curse. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, from the fatherless, or from the widow. Do you hear our God saying, care for the foreigner, care for the fatherless, care for the widow? When you do these things, you'll be blessed. Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. We see this in the book of Ruth, right? Where the farmers are leaving gleanings from their fields so that the poor can come and gather and be cared for. So that the oppressed can find a place to find food and and those in debt can find food to, to, to live by. Not to mention when you go on in the Old Testament, you see the forgiving of debts every seven years. You see that every 50 years, the returning of land back to the original owners, right? So that those who have gone into debt can start over. They're going to be a clean slate. We see that, that God is a God who shows no partiality. Even in the sacrificial system, we see that the wealthy were able to provide large animal sacrifices. But you see God even make an allotment for the poor and say, look, if you can't afford that, you can still come and be in relationship with me through, through the sacrifices of just a bird. You see, he shows no partiality between the poor and the rich. He calls all people into this just and fair relationship with him. I encourage you to meditate this week on Psalm 46. Just read it. Read through it. Think about it. Pray through it. And look at the God that we see there, this God who cares for the fatherless, for the widow, for the poor, for the marginalized, for those on the fringes. We have a God who wants to see justice done on the earth. So what what is justice, right? We hear about it a lot. It's become a massive word in our lexicon over the last 10 or 15 years of we want to see justice done for people, justice done in certain segments of society. What is justice? Well, I think scripturally I would define it as this. It's compassion for, all right, feeling for someone and action on behalf of someone, the less fortunate, the poor, the marginalized, Uh, those who have been oppressed in some way. So it's compassion for them, feeling, but not just feeling. It's it's actually taking action and doing something to put it right, right? To, to, To make it more closely resembling the shalom of God. It's putting things right. This is what God has been doing ever since the fall. And he has called his children to be part of that activity, to feel it, to actually take part in putting it Right. And in the Old Testament, there, there's a, a host of words that, that are thrown around, but often they're found together. The words justice, mercy, and righteousness. Justice, mercy, and righteousness. And they're, and they're often put together. And, and what is wrapped up in those words is the idea of putting things right, of being in right relationship with God, but also in right relationship with humanity, in right relationship with others, in right relationship with the environment, in right relationship with with our things, with our possessions, and and on and on. When Scripture talks about people being righteous, please hear this, because as New Testament believers, we get stuck in this idea of righteousness being about personal sin and about holiness. Righteousness is about living rightly in relationship with God and with others. It's not just about personal holiness. It's a much fuller word than that. And so when scripture in the Old Testament is calling for people to be just, to be merciful, to be righteous, it's this idea of living fair and just and equitable lives towards the world around us so that we can call people into 
the shalom of God, into the goodness of God that was in the beginning. But if you follow the story of Israel, what happens? Do they actually live this out? Are they people of shalom? Do they welcome the world in? Do they, do they live such fair and just lives that the world says, oh, we want to be part of that family of God? No, they don't. They, they fail to do that. I'm used to going behind me for my Bible. It's up front. Uh, what happens in Isaiah 58 uh, is fascinating. Actually, I'll just read it off of here. In Isaiah 58, the people have refused to, to follow God. They refuse to be part of the blessing of God. And so God sends them into exile, into Babylon. And then they start crying out to God, God, why are you not allowing us to come into relationship with you? Why are you not blessing us? Why are you not doing all these things for us? We're, we're pouring out oil on the altar. We're doing our sacrifices. We're fasting. We're praying. Why are you not blessing us? And Isaiah is this prophet who comes to them to call them out of exile and to teach them about what God is actually calling them for. And listen to what he says. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke so that people can be freed, right? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. What Isaiah is calling them to is saying, God doesn't care about all your bulls and blood and sacrifices. He wants to see you be people of justice. He wants to see you living out the shalom of God and inviting people in to love God and to love others. You're missing it with all of this religious behavior. That's not actually what I'm after. And so God removes his hand from blessing from them until he sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to come and be true Israel to be the, the, the fullness of the family of God, to actually do what Micah 6.8 called for, to love justice, to, love, to walk in justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God, to come and be the perfect, righteous Israel who would come and do justice in all of his interactions. Right? I mean, think about the people and the things that Jesus did. Think about the people he hung out with, the things he did. He would regularly be with the poor. Right? He would regularly hang out with the poor and he would call his disciples to do the same. And he would say, when you throw a party, don't just invite the rich people who are going to help you advance in your network. Invite the poor who have nothing to offer you. Call them to the table. We see him hanging out with people who would otherwise be mistreated because of the racism of the Jews. We see him hanging out with women and making them equal disciples with the men. It's crazy. He was a man of righteousness and justice. He was the fulfillment of all that Israel should have been towards the world. And he's calling his children to say, come, come be part of the shalom of God. God is putting things right, and this is what it looks like. Come be a part of it. When I was thinking through narratives to, to go through today, one kept sticking out to me, and it might be a funny one to you to pick, but it's in John 8. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. In John 8, we see this interaction with Jesus and these, these righteous religious people and with this sinful woman. Look at me at John 8. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, being Jesus, uh, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So he's in a super righteous religious environment. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And here's the guy she was with. Oh, wait, no, they don't, do they? They just bring the woman. You see the oppression. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It's like they knew he would be merciful. They were like, oh, we're going to catch him now. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up. I love this image of Jesus kneeling, taking the low spot while the woman stands there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So why did I pick this story? Well, do you see what's happening in this? Here's this woman born into what I would call almost systematic oppression, in which She's a second-class citizen. She's looked down upon. She's shunned. And they drag her in in this embarrassing situation. And rather than having mercy on her, they don't bring in the guy. They bring her in by herself, and they shame her in front of the rest of the religious group. And Jesus, what do you say about this? What do you say about this woman and this adultery that we caught her in? And Jesus can spot the oppression And he calls for mercy. But he calls for mercy in such a way that he says, look, are any of you sinless? Are any of you perfect? See, he levels the playing field. Right there. Everyone, everyone is adulterous. Everyone is sinful. None of you deserve to be throwing the stone. And he brings justice for this woman. But note, he doesn't just say, Great, I don't condemn you. Go on. He still calls out the moral failure that this woman has. He still calls her to to a, a fuller life of not sinning in this way, right? You see, justice doesn't mean that we have to turn a blind eye to personal moral failure, but but it, it justice does mean we can be merciful. Because God has been merciful to us. God was merciful to us and and we are all sinful. So we can spot systematic oppression like Jesus did. We can spot when people are being abused. We can spot when people are in need and bring mercy into the situation and bring justice into the situation. We still bring Jesus and a full life into the situation and call things out when they're not. But we don't have to be part of this self-righteous religious justice bringing like they were. So what does it look like today for us in the church? What does it look like for us as individuals to to do justice? Who are we looking for to bring justice to? Well, when you look all through Scripture, you see the same thing that we see today. We're called to bring justice to people who are oppressed, people who are marginalized and pushed to the fringes of society. We're called to to bring justice for immigrants, for refugees, for, for the alien among us, God says, to love them the way that God loved the Israelites when they were aliens in Egypt. We're called to to love widows. Can I say that we're called to love the modern-day widow, which is the abandoned wife with her kids, the single dad who doesn't have a means to care for his kids anymore. These are our modern-day widows and widowers, widowers among us who need help, 
who need compassion, who need the justice and shalom of God come to bear in their lives. We're called to care for orphans and the disadvantaged, people who are stuck in systematic oppression. So what does it look like to do that? Well, I think we have to identify why it is that that people are poor, why it is that people are without the shalom of God, so that we can help in accurate ways, all right, in gospel-centered ways. Uh, In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller identifies three ways in Scripture that he sees people come into poverty, right? And the first that Scripture goes after heavily is oppression, all right? God is always calling his children to not be people who oppress others, to not be people who oppress the poor or the marginalized or the foreigners. Like, don't don't oppress them. Well, people people today are still born and, and come into oppressive situations, There are still people in power who oppress those who they see as less than them. Maybe even just ignorant, don't even realize they're doing it. But people find themselves in oppression and end up poor because of it, or end up choiceless because of it, or end up voiceless because of it. But it's it's the oppression that keeps them where they're at. It's this systematic injustice. Systematic injustice that has gone on for years in some ways in this country, that it's time for us to open our eyes and see things as they are, and to call it out and to work against it to bring justice. Oppression puts people in poverty. Then I would say calamity. Natural disasters that happen, calamities that happen. Uh, Hurricanes, typhoons, earthquakes, massive fires, drought. These things that, that put people into poverty and take away choices and take away upward mobility and take away the shalom of God. They happen all the time, right? People have no choice in the matter. It just happens. And I would argue that, that where you are born can also be a calamity. Here's what I mean by that. Several years ago, I went to South Africa and I was in Cape Town. And I remember seeing this township full of thousands of kids. Thousands of kids who were born with mothers and fathers who had AIDS, who were born into utter poverty. There's no choice of upward mobility. They barely even get clean water to drink. They had no choice in that matter. That's a calamity. That's something that was thrust upon them. And I find myself born as a white male in the richest, most powerful country in the history of the world. I have been given incredible blessing and power that as a child of God, a child of the gospel, I have a responsibility to wield well and wield with justice for people who've been born in oppressive situations, born into calamity. People find themselves in injustice because of calamity, oppression. But finally, Scripture calls out that people find, them, find themselves in poverty or without choices or without hope because of personal moral failure. They made bad decisions, right? Like, people make bad decisions, there are consequences. If you choose to cheat on your spouse and they leave you, you are suddenly a single parent, you kind of chose into that, Right? If you choose into drug addiction or gambling and you lose all your money and your health, that was a personal moral failure that led you into a place of poverty, a place of losing choices, a place of upward, a lack of upward mobility, whatever you want to call it. The shalom of God is gone, even more so because of decisions that you have made. So oppression, calamity, personal moral failure. Why am I defining this? Because I think sometimes when we look at a situation, we can't see where somebody might need justice. 
Things are complicated. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes than we realize. I remember a couple years ago when I was on, on staff at, at our old church, I was overseeing our benevolence ministry where we, would, we had money set aside to care for people who found themselves needing help with paying their bills. And we got a call about this woman who lived in my neighborhood who needed help. So I went with uh, another guy and uh, the women's ministry director of our church, and we went to visit this woman in her home. Now, if you looked at this situation from the outside, we lived in an upper middle class neighborhood. It was a lake community. She had a home on the lake. She had a Mercedes SUV. Her kids went to good schools. So from the outside, that situation looked fine, right? Looks great by our American eyes. But when we went inside, we found out that there were just boxes everywhere with stuff. Stuff was scattered everywhere. Furniture was all disheveled. We're like, what's going on here? Well, my husband left me last year. Okay. Now you see this thing that happened to her. She had no choice in, right? Her husband left her for another woman, leaves her with four kids, straps her with these bills with a mortgage payment. Went to wash my hands, and I'm like, this is cold. I said, do you have hot water? No. You would never know that from looking from the outside. Her kids are taking cold showers. They're, they're washing their dishes by hand because they don't have the hot water for the dishwasher. On and on. I say this because what we had to do was walk with her through that. We talked several weeks ago about being good neighbors who listen well. We had to listen to her story to figure out what is this mess that's happened here. It's kind of oppression from an abusive husband. It's kind of a calamity. There was some personal moral failures from, from bad decisions she made regarding debt. We had to figure out how to walk with her through that to identify where were areas that we needed to bring compassion, mercy, justice to bear so that she could find the shalom of God that the kingdom is supposed to bring to the earth. I say all that to say it's not always easy to spot this from the outside. You have to be good listeners who go in and hear the story and walk with people. I remember when we were starting the ministry, this older pastor he heard what I was talking about, of like actually assigning people to walk with folks through this. And he's like, you're talking about Christian social workers. And I was like, yeah, right, I am. Like people who actually walk with people through their crap, okay? Like this is what it looks like to have justice for people and to walk with them through their stuff. But what was happening in that situation, I would argue, is a common response to when justice is called for in the church. There's this, this moralism that starts to rise up this religiosity that starts to rise up and says, they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps like I did. That's often what's going on behind the scenes. I found Jesus, so should they. If they could just find Jesus, everything would be okay. They just need the Savior, and everything will be all right. Come on. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not fair to do that. There are times when personal moral failure needs to be addressed, okay? For those that fear that it won't be addressed because of just going after justice. But it takes time and listening and walking with people to enter into the situation, to hear what's going on, to bring justice in its fullness for people who are in that place. So what happens is for, for the moralists is they want the savior without the systems, right? They just, just find the savior and it'll all work out. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and it'll all be okay. But on the other side of the things, we have the world, this humanism that says, we want the systems without the Savior. We want all the blessings of shalom. We want things to be happening. We want good things to be happening. We need to go out if people would just get their acts together and love one another well. We wouldn't have any of these problems. Humanity is the problem. 
Okay? Like, go back to the beginning. We are self-serving. We try to self-save, and it doesn't work. First thing that happens after the fall is murder over envy. Like, humanity will not save itself. There are systems that are needed, but there is a savior that's needed. So you see, it can't be the savior without the systems and the systems without the savior. It actually has to be the gospel, which is the king and the kingdom principles. Okay, the savior and the systems that come to bear because of people walking out this idea of justice in the world around us. Friends, think about the gospel with me for a minute. Did you save yourself? No. Jesus came to you and came to me and pulled you up out of your oppression by the enemy who gave mercy to you and said, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you grace, what you don't deserve, and pulls people up out of their slavery to sin, the death, the darkness, the principles of the evil one. We didn't do anything to deserve that. We didn't earn it. We couldn't earn it. Jesus comes and pulls us up. We didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Jesus pulled us up. You understand what I'm saying? This is what it means to believe the gospel, that Jesus saved us in our helplessness. Now we can go and do the same to the world. We are all like the adulterous woman, caught in sin. None of us deserve to be throwing stones. We are all pulled up by Jesus. And what he does is he restores a right relationship with God, which leads to a right relationship with humanity, which leads to a right relationship with our environment, our work, how we handle our finances, which leads to an identity of knowing who we are. I read a book a couple years ago called When Helping Hurts. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's called When Helping Hurts, and then the longest subtitle ever, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself. All right? It's a great book, all right, called When Helping Hurts. And in that book, they make it clear that in the garden, in Shalom, we had a relationship with God that was good, which led to a relationship with self, which was good, relationship with others that was good, relationship with an environment that was good. This is what we get to bring to people when we bring kingdom principles and the king, when we bring systems and the savior by doing justice in the world. We can't just tell people they need to be saved and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We actually need to show them what saved lifestyle looks like and and bring the blessing of that to them and allow them to walk into it. Now look, I don't know I don't know what God's doing in your individual lives. You you might be called to some huge scale justice initiative. And can I speak to the millennials in the room and even some of the Gen Xers in the room? We're so surrounded by do these huge things, do these huge things. The world changes one person at a time. Some of us might be called to huge projects and I'm not saying don't go after them. But most of us are called to live normal lives in neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, jobs, whatever, where we get to live out justice one person at a time, one family at a time. Now, look, you, you might be called, okay, you might be called to be a lawyer for wrongly convicted criminal, criminals on death row. And I hope that someone in here is. You might be called to that. But, but more than likely, you're called to love people in your neighborhood or workplace who are headed down a bad path right now. You can spare them being wrongly convicted of something. Do you understand what I'm saying? You might be called to the big thing, but you're probably called to the small thing for sure. You might be called to resettle refugees and immigrants for the government. And I hope that some young person in here is called to do that someday. It's a worthy and and noble thing and doing justice for people. 
You might be called to that, but I can tell you that all of us are called to love the immigrants among us. I don't live in Bethlehem now, I live in Nazareth, and the immigrant population is growing quickly. And it's a beautiful thing to see. We are called to love everyone who is in our neighborhoods, one person at a time. Maybe you might be called to advocate for and protect women and to advocate for women to receive equal pay and things like this. Maybe that's what you're called for on a big national scale. And I hope that someone in here is. But more than likely, you're called to advocate for that woman in your neighborhood who was abandoned by her husband. You're called to bring justice to the unwed mother who doesn't know what to do. We're called to be pro-life in all its facets and say, come into my home. Let me care for you. Let me bring the shalom of God into this wreck of a life that you're living right now. Do you see the difference? Maybe huge, most likely small, in small ways that we do this. Maybe, maybe you're called to be part of a nonprofit that cleans up the oceans, that does environmental work. And I believe as Christians, we are called to care for the environment because it's another way of loving our neighbors. Maybe you're called to do this on a huge, in a huge way. Or maybe you're called in small ways every day to think about what you're consuming and buying because it is affecting the people that made it somewhere. You understand? Big, small, every day. Or maybe, maybe you might be called to speak out on a national platform against racism. And I hope that people in here are called to that, that the young people in here are, are called into legislation or, or given a voice at a national level like that. But here's what I can tell you. Every one of us has a voice in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our families when it comes to something like racism, and we can speak the truth of the gospel into that. You understand what I'm saying? It might be on a huge national level, but as every one of us as individuals, we can work together to speak out against things like that and to bring justice to bear in those situations. Friends, this is what our God of justice has always done. Worked through creation to restore creation. Worked through creation, us, his creatures, to bring shalom to the world around us by being people of justice, of living righteous lives, of treating others well and fairly. God wants us to do that because he's the one who's made famous. He receives glory when we do that. He receives praise and the kingdom grows. One person and one family at a time when we love our neighbors by being people of justice. Would you pray with me?